Welcome to the Practice of Theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The Practice of Theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today, we have the privilege to enter into a conversation with Jonathan Lehman to discuss the topic of church discipline. Jonathan serves as the editorial director for Nine Marks, a ministry dedicated to equipping church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for building healthy churches. He also serves as an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church in Bladensburg, Maryland. In addition to editing the Nine Marks series, Jonathan has authored numerous books, including How the Nations Rage, One Assembly, Rediscover Church, and Church Discipline. To find out more about Jonathan, you can visit ninemarks.org and follow him on Twitter, at Jonathan Lehman. The topic we're discussing today is not one that sits at the top of anyone's favorites list. That's because the very nature of church discipline is sobering. No one wants to be under church discipline, but neither does anyone want to conduct it. And yet, Jonathan will help us to see why practicing church discipline is not only a loving act, it serves to make our churches healthier. All right, Jonathan, well, thank you so much for being with me on the Practice of Theology podcast to talk about the topic of church discipline. Thank you, Tyler. Good to be here. Yeah. All right. So to begin, would you mind telling us how you came to know the Lord? Sure. I grew up in a Christian home with wonderful Christian parents who prayed for me and shared the gospel with me, as well as Christian grandparents on both sides who did the same. Uh, Nonetheless, and I, I would say from a young age, I affirmed the truths of Christianity, but I wouldn't say I truly repented of my sins and put my trust in Christ. That probably didn't happen until my, I'm not, I say probably because I'm not sure, I think that happened in my early to mid-20s, uh, as when I was living here in Washington, D.C., I had joined Capitol Hill Baptist because I didn't like the way I'd been living throughout high school and college and mm-hmm. my pursuit of the world, and I felt bad about that. I mean, we're talking about a whole decade in which I was just gusto after the world. Yeah. And so now I'm 23, 24, I joined this church, uh, and little by little, my life began to radically change as a member of the church. Uh, I stopped going out and pursuing the worldly things that I had previously pursued. I I went from, positively, I went from having no interest in the Bible to loving the Bible, no interest in God's people to loving God's people, no to zero interest in in in, in obeying God's law to to wanting to guide my life, let the law guide my life. So I would I would say, and it was it was I was I was sitting under the preaching of God's word. There, this is the mid to late nineties. Uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist here in Washington, D.C. Wonderful, remarkable, transformative years for me. And so mm-hmm. I, I would say that's probably when I became a Christian. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so what do you do now? Uh, now I work as a full-time writer, teacher for Nine Marks, which is a mm-hmm. ministry of this same church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, or at least it's affiliated with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach seminary classes. I write books. I Though I'm presently on a sabbatical, I ordinarily serve as an elder at my church. Uh, for a while, I was at Capitol Hill Baptist and serving as an elder there. Now I'm at a plant of that church, uh, Chevrolet Baptist. And uh, I'm married to Shannon. We have four wonderful, beautiful daughters. We have a, do- have a, do- have a cockapoo named Atticus Finch. <laughs> cockapoo. Named what? Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's uh, go ahead and dive in. Uh, can you help sure. us think through what the Bible says about church discipline? Is it something that's recommended? Is it optional? Is it prescribed? What is it, and how are we to think through it biblically? 
Well, it's commanded. Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. There it is. That's where it begins. Mm -hmm. You are to go to the brother or sister who has sinned against you. You're commanded to do that. And then you're commanded, if he doesn't listen to you, take two or three others so that a matter may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, you're commanded to bring one or two others along. And if he doesn't listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Again, you're commanded to tell it to the church. Ordinarily, this is going to be through the pastors, through the leaders. You know, Let them lead out on that. You don't just pop up one Sunday morning and say, hey, by the way, everybody, I think Tyler <laughs> is just a big jerk and, jerk, and we should excommunicate him. Now, Wait, who told you that that happened? <laughs> <laughs> I can't reveal my sources. Swarm into secrecy. Um, yeah, so we're commanded to. Okay. And when, when church discipline leaves a church, said one older Baptist theologian, Christ goes with it. Mm. So it is a crucial part of maintaining health as churches. It's a crucial part of our evangelistic witness, believe it or not. And it's a crucial, crucial part of how we love one another. Okay. Okay, so you mentioned there it's a crucial part of healthy churches. So is that the sole purpose of church discipline is the health of the church? Why, why are we called to do this process? Well, we do it for the sake of love, right? Loving the the non-Christian, I'm sorry, loving the the uh, the, the Christian who is caught up in a cycle of sin, lest they mm-hmm. be uh, self-deceived and led astray. We do it for the sake of loving weaker sheep in the flock who could be led astray. Um, think of Paul, lest a little bit of yeast work through the whole batch of dough, he says in 1 Corinthians 5 in this same context. We do it for the sake of loving our non-Christian neighbors. Uh, we want them to know who Jesus really is and who he's not. Right. Right. J- Jesus is not, you know, uh, does not mean to identify himself with, with, you know, greedy old men and drunk old women. Right. He doesn't mean to identify himself with y- young uh, folk who live just like the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and finally, we do it for the sake of loving, uh, loving Christ, that we would display his name rightly. So so why do we practice church discipline? We do it for the sake of love, love yeah. for all these different people. We do it for the sake of life and growth. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, says the author of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. And those who perseveres in these things, it goes on to say, will be characterized by a harvest of, of, of righteousness and truth. I'm kind of paraphrasing here from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, we will grow in righteousness and truth as we practice discipline, we grow in strength and vitality as believers as we practice discipline. Yeah. Right? So I could keep going on, yeah. on the why, but, but, but I'll, I'll stop there for yeah. now. Well, yeah, no, and it's interesting, too, because I think oftentimes our, uh, j- just the way we naturally think of church discipline, and it's not completely wrong, but we always think of the person being disciplined as the one we're kind of dealing with, the person at the center when in reality, church discipline deals with the whole church at large, and it really does, when we practice discipline rightly, increases the health of us as a whole. You know, it's not just a negative thing towards the person being disciplined. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, it, it, it is a difficult topic and sometimes uncomfortable, but it is a really good, healthy thing. Well, let, let, me, let me tell you a story just on that. I remember one evening, one Sunday evening, the uh, Elder Greg stood before the church and told the church that... Uh, let me just call him Joe. Joe had left his wife and children for another woman, and he was calling us to, this was kind of step three, tell it to mm-hmm. the church. 
and he was calling us to pray for Joe. And if you have a relationship with Joe, to pursue Joe, and if nothing changed between now and the next regularly scheduled members meeting, that uh, the elders would come back and recommend removing Joe from mm-hmm. membership as a fourth step. But we were kind of in that third step of, now we're telling you, now you guys get involved. Anyway, there's a few questions. How can we love the wife and kids? What do we say to Joe? So a few questions. Anyway, so the meeting ended. And uh, the following Monday or Tuesday night, I went out with a young man, a young single man in the church named David. And David is just uh, a guy I'd been discipling at the mm-hmm. time. And I remember David and I went, to, went out to dinner and we talked about all sorts of other things. And then I, I pulled up in front of David's house to drop him off. He, he opened his car door to step out and go inside. But before he did, he kind of paused, sat back down in the car, shut the door, turned over, looked at me and said, Jonathan, I cannot stop thinking. For the last two days, I've not been able to stop thinking about what 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 Elder Greg said on Sunday night about Joe. Yeah. And it's just, it's killing me. It's breaking my heart. And, and Jonathan, he said, I hate sin. And I was like, that's right, brother. That's it. Sin's a deceiver. Sin, 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 sin is a dammer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that's an actual word, but you know what I mean. It damns us. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what was happening in David's life when El- so Elder Greg goes before the whole church and says, "Hey, older brother has fallen into sin and left home. We all got to do something." What was happening in member David's life sitting there? Well, he was growing in righteousness right. and truth. He was being discipled. This isn't reality TV. This isn't a business school case study. This is real life. This is the family dinner table. And and young David is being edified and learning to hate sin as we work through it together. Yep. Yep. In in love for Joe. That's right. Well, and I mean, you know, all of us who are parents and who at least try to discipline according to, to God's word and teaching our children to fear and admonish the Lord, we always discipline if you have multiple children with the idea that your other children are being disciplined yeah. in a way at the same time, right? Yeah, it's bingo. it's exactly not just about right. my oldest son doing something wrong mm-hmm. and being disciplined. It's about my younger sons learning as well. Oh, that was, that was not what we are called to do. That's not how we are called to live. And seeing my brother go through this discipline actually is a warning to me to live not that way, That's right. but as, a, as my parents have called me to live. And so yeah, I, I do. I do. Uh, you know, thank you for for sharing that story in particular because it it is true that I think sometimes we we focus so much on someone being put out that we forget that you know it really is for the whole church. Okay, so let's say someone generic example, and you can walk us through it very quickly, and and here you can kind of help explain those steps a little bit. But say a community group has just found out that one of their group members uh, is a habitual liar. Um, it doesn't really matter how it came out. Just the group has found out this person is a habitual liar, maybe in their workplace, whatever. Can you walk us through the general process of what church discipline might look like in that instance? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, let's, let's suppose you're a member of that group, Tyler, and, and, and I'm a member of that group. And yeah, these patterns have, have shown themselves that I'm, I'm a habitual liar. Well, I hope first and foremost, Tyler, you're going to come to me, uh, and say, Hey, Jonathan, uh, and if, I mean, you could talk to other members of the group about it, but I, I would hope you would just come to me directly and just say, Jonathan, I've, I've heard this and I've seen that. Um, yep. if, am I misunderstanding? Now, start with some questions, you know, guilt, innocent until proven guilty. M- yep. Maybe maybe you got your facts wrong, right? And so I, I would hope you would come to me with, with, with a few questions, giving me the benefit of the doubt. 
uh, Jonathan, you know, Susie said you said this, and and then and then remember that time you said this to me. It, it felt like later when it turned out to be the case that you know that wasn't true. Um, you seem to have a pattern. I, I, I don't want to indict you, but it looks like a pattern of lying, Jonathan. Am, am I misunderstanding? So start by having a private, personal conversation with me. Now, that private, personal conversation, I don't want to – that's easy between you and me and, say, lying. Now, let's suppose it's, it's something a little bit more involved. Maybe it's, it's a woman in the church who feels like a man in the church has, you know, been inappropriate with her in some ways. I'm, I'm not yeah. telling her to go have a private conversation with him. So that's add right. all yeah. the, the, the caveats you would need in, in these kinds yep. of but, – but, but in what you described, yeah, come to me privately. Talk to me about it. And then let's suppose after the conversation, you remain convinced that, um, yeah, Jonathan has a pattern of lying here, and yet he is not repenting. He seems uninterested in addressing this. Well, at that point, I hope you would go to another member of the small group or somebody, somebody either A, who knows about it, or B, and the B is almost more important, you mm-hmm. trust spiritually, who's mature spiritually, um, and, and, and come back to me, maybe two people, come back to me. And have the conversation again, because maybe you're going to bring along a couple of other people and have a conversation. And when they hear me, they're going to say, yeah, Tyler, yeah, I, th- I think you're kind of stretching the truth yourself. I, I think you're misunderstanding what, what Jonathan is saying. They, right. they could mm-hmm. say that. Yep. But let's suppose, in fact, they don't. Let's suppose they agree with you that this charge you're making is going to be established by you, them, and both of them, too. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point... I would say talk to talk to the elders if elders aren't already involved. Talk to elders or pastors in your church. Uh, explain the situation and, as it were, let them undertake what happens from there. Now, ordinarily, assuming they also have these conversations, they're they're going to bring it to the whole church. Yeah, right. And assuming I remain unrepentant, but what you're what you're doing, what you're doing at this point is you're seeking to either a, both a uh, determine whether or not the facts are the facts, and B, I'm unrepentant in them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's kind of what you're seeking out in these conversations. Now that Matthew 18 process I just described isn't a, uh, you know, directions for operating a, a, a copying machine where you absolutely right. have to do one, two, three every time. Right. Rather, it's it's giving us several principles of smaller to greater. Of, of of carefully methodically looking for the facts process that that's yep. what you're after yeah all right so help us think through think through it a little bit more let's let's add some layers to it let's say we we go to this made up person named Jonathan I think their last name is Lehman perhaps and and we say you know Jonathan here's this pattern help us understand and they're like ah you know just leave me alone. That's not what it is. So you you come back with two brothers or a brother and a sister and you say, hey, you know, we all really see this. You, you know, can you help uh-huh. us understand? And he says, you know what, you guys, I'm so sorry. You're, you're right. I do have a problem. I repent. And uh, church discipline, it, it stops, right? It does. But insofar as more people in the church have been affected by it or are aware of it, mm-hmm. It stands to reason you need to to discuss the matter with them. So go back to the whole small. So if the whole small group knows it, but only two of you have come talk to me, and I repent, you know, I, I would go back to the small group in some form or fashion, and either have me repent towards all of them, or not always. Maybe you just explain to them, "Hey, great conversation with Jonathan. He he repented. He confessed. Praise the Lord. Let's let's thank God together for for yeah. that, and we're moving on." 
Yep. Another thing I want to ask is, let's say we get down the road um, six months. And again, this pattern of uh, habitual lying comes up. Do we start at step one with with this man again or or what happens? And, and what happens if this is a reoccurring pattern over, over three years, but repentance keeps happening always at step yeah. two or three? Yeah, that's 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 that that really is hard. Let, 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 forget forget me in habitual lying. Let me tell you tell me a real story. Mm-hmm. A real story of okay. of uh, a young man who I was spending a lot of time with a discipling who had various forms of sexual addiction. Um, you know, I, I he 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 brought it out to me first of all. I didn't know about it. I, I said, "Hey, let's grab lunch." And in that lunch, he said, "Hey, Jonathan, I really struggle with." you know, these things. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Okay. Well, we need to, we need to, we need to fight that brother. And he was interested in fighting. Yeah. Right. But over time he was interested in fighting, not interested in fighting, interested in fighting, not interested in fighting. And, and so it goes. Um, and I remember sitting there one time at Burger King. I don't know why it stands out in my head, but I was sitting there at Burger King and he confessed, you know, stumbling yet again. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, what do I do? Like I'm, yep. I'm out of I'm out of pastoral tools here. I've tried carrot. I've tried stick. I've tried encouragement. I've tried rebuke. I mean, I've done everything I can with this guy. Maybe I need to bring others. Um, and yeah, so you're kind of constantly living in that tension of do do I proceed to the next step or not? Right. Right. So there is some desire to keep it as small as possible. Again, Matthew 18. But we're we're going to go to the second, third, fourth step as occasion requires, or insofar as you think it'd be helpful to the individual who's struggling in that sin. And frankly, that's just a judgment call. Um, Now, with this particular individual, that over time, he continued to stumble, but it was getting better. Hmm. So, you know, it started with, I'm just going to kind of put it out there. It started with certain kind of visits to like, anonymous people we uh-huh. meet on the internet, right? Yep. But, th- but then it went from there to, to, uh, to just, just pornography. I mean, that's sin, but that's better than actually visiting people in right, parks. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, okay. Well, so, and then the, the per- frequency of pornography slowly decreased from like every day for an hour to like once a week. So over the pattern, over two or three years, I saw this gradual improvement, right? Yeah. I saw the brother continually confessing to me and continually trying to fight it. And it's that fight that you're looking for. Yeah. Right. If there's a fight, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So if you'll fight with me, I'll fight with you as long as it takes. Right. Um, but when you're like, mm, yeah, this guy's not fighting, he just seems to be happy and content, and his words of apology just seem fake. I don't, I don't believe him anymore. Yeah. Well, then yeah, then you have to proceed to let, let me bring some others along here. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I think that sexual sin is certainly one of those where it takes quite a bit of time to to see any real movement. I mean, there's a lot of failure. And I mean, that's with all sin. I mean, the process of sanctification is is not a like up and out line. It's it's a struggle um, for yeah, all right. of us. And so I think, you know, as we're thinking about these. Well, t- let, me, let me jump in there, yeah. t- Tyler. So, something that you're looking for, especially with patterns of addiction, is, is you're seeking to distinguish between rebellious mm. and weak. Yeah. Those are different things. Yeah. And pastorally, or just as one Christian to another, you're trying to discern, is this person doing this because they're rebellious? They're sinning with a high hand? Or is it because they're just, they're weak, they're malformed, they just been, there's been years of this and they want to get out of it, but they can't or they're, yeah. just, they're finding it difficult. So that, 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 that question, is this rebelliousness or is this weakness, is going to affect, it's going to be one of the major va- variables in your, your judgment about whether or not to proceed to the next level, yeah. as it were. Yeah. 
Uh, so a question based on that is, is, is that how you kind of look at your time frame of discipline? Because certainly pastorally, there are cases that we want to be much more long suffering with, yeah. especially in the case of, of, you know, maybe infant believers who have come from patterns uh-huh. of sin uh-huh. and, and they're, they're really trying, but they're really caught up. Uh, and then someone maybe who's been in the church for a long time and has confessed and they're habitually sinning. Um, you know, how do we distinguish between when we're long suffering and when the process of discipline needs to move quicker than it is. I mean, that's hard. I think it's case by case, but anything you have to offer there? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. And what what you're what you're kind of um, intuitively getting at there, I think, Tyler, is not only do you need to consider the sin, uh, you need to consider the sinner and what their background and circumstances are. Think of Paul where he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Mm. Okay, th- those are different kinds of people, right? The, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. And, and slightly different doctor's orders are necessary for each one of those people. And so, yeah, to right. some extent, the duration and how long you walk with somebody is, is determined by those kinds of pastoral qu- background questions that you're going to ask of of any individual. Um, and if you're going to err, you know, I think err towards long suffering. Yeah. But at the same time, there needs to be a willingness to act decisively. Paul acts very decisively in first Corinthians five. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, hand this man over to Satan like this Sunday. That's right. Basically. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, somehow God give us wisdom, please, because we need to strike that balance between being long suffering and 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 bearing with the weak, but also being willing to courageously act decisively for love's sake, knowing it's for the, it's for their good's sake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I'm you know I totally agree, and I just think I think it's something hopefully that you learn with age. I mean, I'm 31, and I've only been in full time vocational ministry for like seven years. But the one thing I've learned is that you know coming out of Bible college and then seminary. I just had this like strong view of justice, that justice was always swift. And I am so thankful that that's not how the Lord has dealt with me, Amen. that he's not been swift against my <laughs> sin. Instead, yeah. he's been very gracious and long suffering. And so as, as I pastor, you know, the longer I do it and getting to serve with older brothers in particular, I realize, you know, in most cases, what are we rushing to? Uh, you know, we have confronted this person in their sin. They are aware of it. They know we're aware of it. All of the people that, you know, could be in harm's way are aware of it. You know, we really want to get this right out of a desire to love them and love the Lord and love this church well. And so, you know, certainly there are cases where it's like, yeah, this person has left his wife. He's living in this relationship. He's going to be disciplined and put out of the church. He has yeah. no desire to come back. Yeah. But then there are going to be cases where you have, you know, people from very broken backgrounds and you just, you know, you scratch your head a lot at the Uh things they do and the continued Uh patterns, Uh but at the same time, you just thank God that they're here. Um, and, and you want to take time with them, you know, before you have to potentially, uh, put them out of a church. So, yeah. When you think about which sins require public exposure Mm. and discipline, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it needs to be three things, right? It needs to be, um, verifiable. Mm. It needs to be significant. Yep. And it needs to be unrepentant. All three of right. those things. Let, let, let me let me think, verifiable. Um, I'm not going to bring you up before the church because I suspect 
pride in your heart or That's greed right. in your heart. We're going to excommunicate you. Why? Because you're greedy. Well, how do you know I'm greedy? Well, I can just tell. <laughs> well, no, that, that greed needs to show itself. That's right. Some verifiable, by, think, think Matthew 18 again, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Yep. In other words, pastors should never be standing in front of their churches giving their interpretation That's right. of the facts. No, That's just, right. These are the facts. We all agree on them. Yep. That that so number one, verifiable. Number two, significant. Now all sins in one sense are damnable, but we also recognize that some sins, I think, are more consequential than others mm-hmm. and reveal a harder heart than others. Like let's suppose hypothetically you had a husband who was selfishly eating all the ice cream in the house. I know that's <laughs> hard to imagine, but just go with me for a second. Selfishly eating the ice cream in this house, and his wife is like, Stop it. He's uh. like, Yeah, you know. Now, should she go before the church and say, my husband is selfishly eating all the ice cream in the house? I'm going to say no. You can disagree with me. No, I'm I'm going to say say no, too. My (laughs) wife says yes. I say no. (laughs) There we go. Okay. And uh, okay. So that's, let's, I I don't want to call it an insignificant sin, but on the spectrum, you know, it's, it's one that I think, how, how am I measuring significance like this? I can understand how a Christian is going to do that. Yep. And I'm still willing to affirm him as a Christian. Right. Whereas the man, let's not let's go down to the other end of the spectrum, the man who leaves his wife for another woman. I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and have the Holy Spirit of God in you and do that. And and even if in some crazy hypothetical sense it's possible, I don't think I'm called by Jesus to publicly affirm your profession of faith That's as right. a member of this church. That's right. I need to remove in integrity, I need to remove that 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 affirmation, which is your church membership. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So number two, significant. Number three, finally, uh, unrepentant. Mm-hmm. So they've been challenged. They don't let go. They're still holding on to the sin. So I, I, I think keeping those three things in mind is is in the life of the church. There's going to be lots of places where we should be forbearing with one another, be long suffering, where love covers a multitude of sins. The overall tenor of the church needs to be that kind of patience and endurance and forbearance with one another. But when something becomes, as I said, verifiable, significant, and unrepentant, that's when it will need to go before the whole body. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, and I mean, too, when you when you think about, like, thinking through the types of sins, I mean, you know, the church is not a building. The church is a, a body. It's a, it's a people. Right. It's those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and brought together. And so we each individually are, you know, spokesmen of that church. Like, what that's we right. do and what we say— is a representation of who we are and what we claim. And so, you know, in putting someone out, you're also making a statement, this is not who we are. Yeah, that's right. And so I think that's helpful too when you think of the the types of sins you would, you know, want have to have public confession for. We all struggle with certain things, um, you know, just in general, but then certainly like you're saying there are things that we would look at and think that's that's you know next level. That's not something that a lot of people are dealing with and yeah. uh, it does need to be addressed in a, a heightened sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, what does it mean? You know, we get to that final step. What does it mean when we excommunicate or put someone outside the church? And uh, you know, there are some churches who use the the words ostracize. I don't know. You may, maybe you can help us think through that word. But what are we doing when we excommunicate? Yeah, you're not saying that they're going to hell, or, you're, or rather, you're not consigning them to hell, right? As as if as if through some sort of ex opere operato Roman Catholic view. Uh, you're not even saying with utter confidence before God, this person is a non-Christian, right? We do not have Holy Spirit X-ray vision eyes. Rather, when you remove somebody from membership in the church, what you are saying is we as a church 
are no longer willing to affirm their profession of faith, and therefore we are going to treat them as an unbeliever, mm-hmm. right? Um, what is church membership? Church membership is a church's affirmation of a person's profession of faith and oversight over it. And so church discipline is the opposite. It's the removal of that affirmation. Right. right? And um, uh, do you ostracize them? Uh, I mean, you are saying you are no longer a member. You're no longer welcome to the Lord's table. But I think you are saying ordinarily, and this is not all circumstances, ordinarily we, we would welcome people to continue attending the public gatherings of the church. In fact, right. we say to the church, there's no place we'd rather them be than sitting under the preaching of the word. Um, now, there are, as I said, there are exceptions. We, we once disciplined an individual for literally beating up multiple members of the church and had to take, oh my a, goodness. Had to take a restraining order against oh this individual for physical violence. Well, okay, that person could not attend. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm sorry to laugh. That's just so unbelievable. It is, it's it's like, absurd. No, it's laughable. Beating up our church members. It's, it's 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 absurd. It really. Oh is. my. Well, there. I think there was some. Yeah, I won't get into it. Yeah. Um. Uh. So, but so occasionally, yeah, a person can't physically attend, but ordinarily, right. we 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 encourage them to. Attend. It doesn't mean that you would never uh, speak to the individual at all, but it does mean that the nature and character of your relationship is going to dramatically change. It takes right. on a, a new kind of dare I say, severity and, and coldness, mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. not coldness, at least just kind of a somberness, right, a yeah. soberness. Um, so you're not getting together and just hanging out and talking about football. Uh, insofar as you are getting together with that person, you, you, you know, you're saying, how are you doing? Uh, and you're saying, has anything changed? Yeah. Uh, what, what's, what's going on with you? And those things that you know were, were were part of your removal from the church. So, you're, yeah. in other words, you're talking about repentance. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I always have to throw in my exceptions. I think one ex- clear exception is if it's a family member. Mm-hmm. If it's a member of your family, your husband, your wife, your brother, your son, your parent, you still have family biblical family obligations to fulfill. Right. Right. So that wife still of the excommunicated husband still loves and lives with her husband in all the ways the Bible recommends. The breaking mm-hmm. of the church membership relationship doesn't mean the breaking of the family relationship. Those are, those are different institutions. And so now that that wife of the excommunicated husband has a, a difficult line to walk. That's right. right. She, yeah. So she's going to eat dinner with him, but she's not going to ask him to pray for the meal right. sort of thing. She doesn't want to do anything that undermines the church's action in his life and her her communicating to him, hey, I'm, I'm with the church. The church did right when it excommunicated you for your, yep. for your unrepentant drunkenness. And yep. I want you to repent of that drunkenness. So I'm standing with the church, but I do love you. You're my husband, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to support you and be a wonderful wife to you. Mm-hmm. You see, that's a, hard, that's a hard task, and she yeah. needs the church to help her do it. Yeah. Well, and what a great reminder, too. I mean, when we think about church discipline and— you know, unfortunately, getting to the point of having to excommunicate someone because, yes, while it's in love, I think all of us, you know, the church as a whole, certainly those of us who are pastors, there is a sorrow of having to do that. You know, it's, oh, it's like course. being cast out of the garden. Like that doesn't oh, please the Lord no. to put you outside of his, his, his presence, his people. But it is a good reminder, though, that in the midst of discipline, there are other people that, you know, we need to have continued care for. You know, for instance, in this example, this wife, I mean, the church really wants to make sure, certainly those who are close to her, 
that they are caring for her, that she has a place to to be able to speak freely and to think through things and to get good counsel. And so, I, you know, I, that that's a really good reminder. I think sometimes we could tend to miss. Well said. All right. So how can folks in the church serve one another with greater intentionality in an effort to keep sin issues from becoming matters of discipline? Yeah, sure. I mean, something in case... In case you happen to be a pastor listening to this and you're convicted from from Scripture that, oh, I do need to practice this. No, you, you don't just jump straight into it. Yeah. Right? A number of things have to go first. And one of the main things that has to go first, and here I'm now I'm answering your question, Tyler, of how tr- members can serve each other, is is you need, to, you need to have a culture of discipling. Mm. You need to have a culture of meaningful relationships where I'm, I'm getting to know you and I'm letting you get to know me. Right where where it's it's a regular part of my weekly schedule that I'm going out with lunch or going out to dinner or I'm I'm inviting people over or uh, you know picking up groceries because you know you live down the street for you and we're bumping into each other casually. In, in other words, a regular part of the church's life is that kind of life on life, meaningful conversation, relationship building, encouraging one another in the faith life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if that's not in place, it's really hard to practice kind of public, broad sword wielding excommunication, that's church right. discipline. Right. Um, practice giving and receiving godly encouragement to your brothers and sisters in the faith. Practice giving and receiving godly criticism. Right. There's immature encouragement and there's mature encouragement. There's yeah. immature criticism and mature criticism. And a skill and a love language we all need to grow in is how to give and receive that encouragement and that criticism because we're living loving, meaningful relation loving, meaningful relationship with one another. As I said, a culture of discipleship. Now, in some cultures, you know, I was giving these kind of conversations with Filipino. Uh, uh, churches and pastors not too long ago. And, and in fin- Filipino culture, man, you mm-hmm. never say anything critical about somebody right. else. And very shame cultures, you would never do that sort of thing. So I recognize in different cultural contexts, what I'm, what I'm calling for, that kind of meaningful conversation is going to be more or less difficult. Yeah. Various cultural things will stand in the way. Nonetheless, we're called to put into effect a heavenly culture, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, the culture of heaven invading Filipino or white American or Brazilian or Kenyan or whatever culture you're a part of, and with sensitivity, with wisdom, with care, we're learning how to love one another uh, like that. And I think that's a critical part of leading up to it. Let me read you one verse from Ephesians four, verse twenty nine: Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good. For building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Mm. I want to learn how to speak words to my brothers and sisters Christ. That is, number one, good for building up. Mm-hmm. Number two, fits the occasion. It's sensitive. Right. It's careful. And number three, that it gives grace mm. to those who hear. Now, sometimes that's encouragement. Sometimes that's a correction. Yeah, that's right. But we, we need to practice that kind of speech yeah. with each other. Yeah, yeah. So well said. So you had mentioned it there. You know, let's say we we cultivate that environment, you know, that that becomes a fabric of the life of our church. How does a pastor go about introducing church discipline to their church as a as a process? What, what what's that going to look like for pastors who are thinking, I don't do that now. 
Um, you know, we're working on this culture of, of discipleship, living intimately with one another, but now I kind of need to roll out this thing. How do I do it? Well, number one, it's just speaking to that culture of discipleship. That just needs to be a regular part of his preaching and teaching and, and applying of the sermon text any given Sunday, mm-hmm. encouraging people to be building those kinds of relationships. Number two, he's got to make sure he's teaching the gospel really clearly. And I mean yeah. the full gospel, not just an easy believism gospel, not just Jesus is a savior gospel, but repent and believe gospel. It's Jesus is a savior and Lord gospel, right? where we understand that part of being a Christian, living in the gospel, means helping each other fight sin. Right? So he needs to be teaching the gospel. He needs to be teaching about church membership. You need to be practicing church membership where there's a clear line between the inside and the outside. If there's not, how can you practice church discipline with integrity? So your church membership practices need to be in place. And that means, number four, your your documents, as it were, need to be in place, uh, mm. kind of stating how this is going to work, a constitution that says the ordinary processes are these, uh, a statement of faith that tells us what we're to believe, a covenant that tells us how to live. Okay, so how, okay, all of that, what, what then finally does he do? Well, he needs to be teaching on discipline itself, right? You're, again, you're using sermons to apply it. Uh, maybe I'm preaching 1 Peter 1.16, behold, we go on holy. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us as individuals? That means we fight sin. What does that mean for us as a church? Well, that means we help each other fight sin. Right. It means we even practice church discipline. Mm-hmm. So I'm not necessarily in Matthew 18, and there I am in 1 Peter. Right. And I yep. got a holiness text. And I'm applying it to the whole church and saying, hey, discipline is one way we to do this. Obviously, I'm going to be teaching 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 and specific discipline texts like that as well. Maybe I'm passing out books and just say to your church leaders, make sure you start with your church leaders. Make sure they understand and are on the board with church discipline right. before you, you practice it. There needs to be unity there. And then little by little, the church, and you're cultivating that understanding and that knowledge in a church. I know a whole church where the elders have done such a great job teaching it. And yet they were still a little timid about practicing it. It finally got to a point where there was a, a man who was being abusive with his wife and the church were coming to the elders and saying, hey, guys, you got to do something, right? You've been teaching us right. about discipline. Come on, let's yeah. go. Yeah. Praise the Lord. That was a well-taught church, even if yep. they had slightly timid elders. <laughs> right. You know? Yep. Uh, but gratefully, the elders followed at that point and led the, the church mm-hmm. to excommunicate that man. So yeah, lots of teaching, yeah. lots of conversation. And then finally, when you, when you go to practice it, um, start with the easy one. Start with something that's really clear that all Christians are going to say, yeah, that's bad. right. Yeah. Right. Uh, again, a, a kind of classic example, a man leaving his wife or something. Mm-hmm. All Christians are like, no, he should not do that. That's right. Yep. Um, yeah. So you, you're going to start with one of those situations. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And as far as resources, are there any um, books? Maybe there's like a healthy church series or something or like something. a little red book or so anything maybe. that you would recommend maybe? Maybe. Uh, I've written a few books, <laughs> strangely, on this topic. <laughs> Who sets out in life to write multiple books on church? Jonathan, the habitual I'm, liar. <laughs> that's right. Lehman. Um uh, <laughs> Uh, I wrote one more for church leaders, just called Church Discipline. That's mm-hmm. the little red one you were mm-hmm. referring to. I wrote a, a smaller, thinner one called Understanding Church Discipline, just for the average member. I'd, I'd encourage you to grab that one. It's it's only like, I don't know, 15,000 words. It's very yeah. short. Oh, is that the... is. Sam Amat, is he the editor of that little series? No, no, that that's a third. That's actually a third one I've written. Okay. Uh, the Sam Amati edited Church Questions booklet. There, it's about, yeah. about 6,000 words. Mm-hmm. It's like a long article. 
uh, is called Is Church Discipline Really Loving? Uh, grab that one too. Yeah, no, I would commend all of those. Very helpful and uh, great references too, even if you, you know, are currently practicing church discipline well in your church. Okay. So with the final time we have, if you could say something to someone who has been under church discipline and they have not been restored to a church, but they're, they're kind of struggling with feeling like the Lord is pushing them back to a church. How might you encourage them if you had a chance to talk to them? I mean, ironically, I had this conversation about a month ago with an individual, um, and I wasn't a part of his church. I didn't see what happened. So on the one hand, I didn't feel like I could come in and say, and he 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 was contesting it. He was saying, I think the church did me did me wrongly. Mm. I think they were unjust. And if so, if I'm speaking to that individual, I mean, you know, I would guess four times out of five, they might think the church did the wrong thing. Right. Uh, I can point to examples where they say, absolutely, the church did the right thing. I, I can tell those stories too. But in all likelihood, you might question whether or not the church did the right thing. And there I would just say to you, trust the Bible. Specifically, trust the fact that God established churches and gave them the keys of the kingdom, gave them the authority to do exactly this. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to always get it right, just like no authority figure, parent, policeman always gets it right. Nonetheless, Mm -hmm. God has established it. Right. And your job, your first job, friend, who has been under the discipline of the church, is to pray, to open up your heart, to consider that the church may well be right. And you need to pursue and investigate and do your best. You will do good for your soul eternally by doing all you can to see it from the church's point of view. And enlist friends of yours who you trust to help you. Not just say, oh, you're fine, they're wrong. No, true friends who will be honest with you and help you see it from the church's point of view. Yeah. Because if, yeah. if if you're living in self-deceit, and we all can, if you don't think you can be self-deceived, you're not a Christian. Christians right. know they can be self-deceived. That's right. Uh, so so you know, there's cream cheese on my face. I can't see it. I need to somebody say, there's cream cheese on your face, right? So enlist friends that will help you see it. So that you mm-hmm. can repent, if in fact, as I said, you're living yeah. in self-deceit. Now, if you're finally to the point where you're, you're under conviction, like, yeah, I, I can see why they did that. Well, then you need to reconcile with that church. That doesn't mean you have to rejoin that church. You do need to reconcile with them. Right. You, you, you need to go to the elders, assuming it's a faithful church. There are abusive churches that I would warn you against. That's another yeah, conversation. Certainly. Assuming it's a faithful church that's not abusive, um, go to the elders and say, what do I need to do? What, 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 what steps would you have me take? How can, I, how can I prove to you my repentance and love for you and love for our Lord? I want to do it. I want to clear myself. There's a difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. Take a look at that text and uh, see what Paul says about what a godly sorrow looks like. Yeah, yeah, that's a great word to end on. Well, brother, thank you so much for being with me. I've enjoyed this conversation, and I pray and trust that it will be helpful to those who listen, and I hope that it helps churches to be healthier and to desire to love the Lord and His sheep better. Thank you, Tyler. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can help others find and be encouraged by this content by leaving a rating and review wherever you're listening.